The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest No Bad Horses edition. It's Wednesday, August 15th, 2018. On today's show, a very English scandal is a very British import miniseries. It's a dramatization of the 1970s Jeremy Thorpe scandal. Luckily, we have June Thomas here to tell us what those words mean. I know this much to be true, though it stars a wonderfully revived Hugh Grant. And then The Tale is the first feature film by documentarian Jennifer Fox. It is, as she herself has said, a brutally candid telling of the story of her own childhood sexual abuse. It stars Laura Dern. And finally, we begin the excruciating process of saying goodbye to Lady Soul. The news has broken that Aretha Franklin, uh, as of this recording, is in hospice care. Um, we will discuss her <laughs> incalculable legacy. I mean, there is just there is one thing, and I really mean this sincerely. There's one thing in the world you are not allowed to not like. You <laughs> couldn't, uh, and still be human, and that's the the singing of Aretha Franklin. We'll discuss her legacy with Jody Rosen. Joining me today is June Thomas. June, do you have some fancy new title I should know about? Uh, I am your bot. No, <laughs> <laughs> clear out your desk. <laughs> uh, I'm no. I'm the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Uh, you got so there's another. You get another adjective every couple of weeks. I every swear time I come on the show, I get a new another <laughs> adjective. <laughs> it's numinous. Next, time. I have to keep getting new business cards printed. I love it, and of course. Uh, uh, Slate's film critic Dana Stevens. No adjectives same, for no me. No adjectives at all. <laughs> my God, what is the matter with you? The venerable film critic. <laughs> that just Slate. sounds like old. <laughs> Hi, Steve. <laughs> uh, okay. I. Uh, anyway, should we dive right in? Before we go any further, I should say that I will be sitting out the discussion for a very English scandal, which means that I'm handing the hosting baton over to the very capable Dana Stevens. All right. Thank you, Steve. And I'm sorry you can't join us for this segment. But on the other hand, perhaps my dream conversation is to sit down with a cup of tea, as I currently have, and talk with June Thomas about scandal-ridden British television. (laughs) (laughs) Before we dive into the conversation, let's listen to a clip from A Very English Scandal, the new Stephen Frears-directed series from the BBC, playing on Amazon. Good morning. And a very, very fine morning it is, too. Good morning, sir. Let me... Uh, Jeremy Thorpe, I've come to stay for the weekend. I'm a guest of Mr. Vanderbilt. I know, sir. He said ah. he was very excited. Quite a special visitor, member of Parliament and all of that. What's your name? Um, Norman, sir. Norman? Josef. Josef. Well, I'd best get back to work. Will you be riding this weekend, sir? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's a great, great passion of mine. Well, I can prepare the horse myself. What level are you at? What kind of um, mount would suit you best? Well, I just, just the right sort of mount for me, really. All right, so the voices you hear there are Hugh Grant as Jeremy Thorpe and Ben Wishaw as Norman Scott, called Norman Jazeef at that point in his life. Mm-hmm. He went under several different names, I yeah. gather, during yeah. his life. So, June, you have a little bit of backstory with the backstory of a very English scandal. Can you tell us about that before we get started? Yeah, well, I so when I, the book came across the transom, as they often do, like months before it was published, and I grabbed it because this is like the scandal that I most remember from my kind of teenage years. I mean, I remember being home from school watching the 
daytime news and it being all, you know, essentially the kinds of reports that show up in this in this series. Uh, so just to kind of say this is a the, the show, A Very English Scandal, is about the the kind of the affair of Jeremy Thorpe, who was leader of the Liberal Party in Britain, uh, and Norman Scott, a kind of vagabond, uh, you know, person who mostly worked with horses, model, you know, a guy who really couldn't get sort of serious work. Uh, and Thorpe puts a hit out on Scott after Scott would kind of talk about their affair to just about anybody he met, including the police or people in pubs or just about anybody. Over a period of a decade or more, yeah, right? The talking yeah. happened. Yeah. Um, and then there was a trial. Jeremy Thorpe was put on trial for uh, for the hit uh, and, you know, for commissioning a murder. Uh, but this trial, which you know, contained a lot of scandal that would be reported on the news about homosexual relationships and weird phrases that they would use for each other was something that was absolutely a centerpiece of my teenage years. And I just remember being both fascinated by the trial. I could already tell that there was like that the establishment was siding with this, you know, establishment figure. Uh, But it was like it was it was it had everything. It was scandal and sordidness, but also it had this really strong gay theme that even as a teenager I knew like was salient to my life and, and was was unfair and unjust. So I remember the events very well. I love John Preston's book. And so I was actually I kind of put off watching the series because I cared too much about the material. But I did, of course, love it. So then you, more than anyone I know, are qualified to say whether this treatment of the scandal uh, is adequate to what really happened, adequate to Preston's treatment of it, and, you know, whether it's just simply works as narrative drama and comedy from time to time. Well, I'm curious to hear what you think about how it works uh, as drama and as comedy and all of that. Um, I think that it's very accurate about the scandal. And I think that Preston's book did have, I don't know if it's a flaw, it's like something that you kind of have to have in a book. Like, he got into a lot of detail I mean, because the the relationship between Thorpe and Scott was very much abbreviated in the in the TV version. Um, you know, you're kind of told, oh no, it went on for years, but we weren't we didn't have to see all the years. We get a montage essentially yeah. for the, yeah. re- the relationship. I guess yeah. The question about the show to me, this this not knowing very much about the scandal at all, played both as really interesting history of the mm-hmm. decriminalization of homosexuality in Britain, which happens over the course of their relationship, and which interestingly enough, Jeremy Thorpe votes for and Absolutely. argues for in Parliament. Right? Yeah. yeah, he wasn't a hypocrite politically. But I guess the question would be whether it does treat too lightly the uh, the cruelty and exploitiveness of that relationship and, you know, just the, the violence and, and danger that Thorpe put Scott in. And and Scott, who is the only one of the principals left alive, appears briefly at the end. We sort of see that he's still around and he's doing OK. But he's said in the press that he, as much as he admires the actors, does not like this treatment of, of his story because he says there's nothing funny about someone trying to murder you. Yeah. I mean... I wish I could say that I had the moral standing to to, to find that fault in this yeah. show, but I actually loved the, the 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 dark humor and that the sort of light touch with which it treated um, some of the the murder scandal. Which had it actually resulted in a murder, would certainly be inappropriate to treat that way. But given the kind of gang who couldn't shoot straight nature yeah. of yeah. these jokers that are hired to kill him. There is a comic element to it. Yeah. And I think Hugh Grant, you you may not agree with me, but I think that he plays that curdled charm incredibly well. And that oh, element of menace that you mentioned, yeah. it's not foregrounded at all in the script. Mm-hmm. You might even say that it's slightly glossed over in the mm-hmm. script. Hugh Grant is so incredible at this point in his career at, at playing 
charming cads, that he mm-hmm. can play a charming cad with thousands of different angles. And I feel like you see all that at work in his performance. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And I, you know, I, I hear what Scott is saying um, because I laugh too. And, you know, I think that Russell T. Davis, who's an amazing writer, kind of foregrounds that. There's a lot of uh, references, uh, which I I don't think, I mean, I know that people have mentioned in like press pieces in the US, but one of the people in the ridiculous gang who couldn't shoot straight is called John Le Majurier, which was also the name of a very famous British comedian. And they keep saying, oh, not the comedian, not the guy in Dad's Army. And that just kind of seems like, oh, that's just a British thing that Americans won't quite get. But it, I think that they keep mentioning it partly just to, <laughs> to really sell it. Yeah, it wasn't the guy from Dad's Army, but also because this is like something out of a British situation comedy from the 70s. And I will also say that the woman who plays um, the the pub, the publican who Norman Scott is living with kind of when the trial happens, um, she is played by Michelle Detrice, who was the who was Betty in Some Mothers Do Have em, which was an, also a very classic 70s comedy, which is not quite in the same vein as Dad's Army, but is like of that period and of that style. And it's very BBC comedy. And so I think that Davis and maybe even Frears are kind of playing with that. Like it is ridiculous. It's it's absurd. It's it's surreal. And yes, and I think too, when we see Rinka dying, which was something that was kind of that was always kind of a little bit of a joke, like Auburn Waugh, the writer, um, he took on this case mostly because he was, you know, not fond of Thorpe, but he ran for parliament in Jeremy Thorpe's uh, constituency for the Dog Lovers Party. And that's, you know, that's shown very briefly in the series, but like it was always kind of treated as a joke. And I think in this series, we at least get to see Norman Scott making what I actually don't think are completely accurate like statements because he was like he wasn't a weakling but he was a victim and he was exploited not only by Jeremy Thorpe but by the system we see how because he's he actually was bisexual or he wouldn't really identify as gay but he was effeminate or is I don't know I haven't seen, I haven't seen him in many years but you know he was the kind of man whose affect would enrage a certain type of person and he was a victim because of that and people did laugh at him it doesn't mean he was funny or a, you know something he didn't mean he deserved it but he was laughed at and i think it's that's accurate and terrible yeah the the show is incredibly precise in its writing and its direction and its acting too yeah. at at getting across the the nuances of homophobia in right. Britain at that right. time right? right I mean it's it's not kind of a sweeping condemnation of the bad people who right. didn't believe it was okay to be gay and then the triumphant lefty sort of pro gay contingent fighting against them not at right. all in fact right. there's so much internalized homophobia in every character including you know the 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 most out character at all, of all who was Norman Scott mm-hmm. uh, who was not shy about going around complaining about his his former lover for 10 right, years right. but still took great offense when he was mocked as effeminate or put in the public eye as you say in this in this mocking way and that and that's a place where Ben Wishaw yes. another really heavy hitter in yes. this you know British acting field uh, really puts his full talent into play because the character that he plays also is so full of 
of shadow. He's, he's yeah, not yeah. at all an innocent victim brought to the slaughter, although he's called Bunny in the, the famous Bunny's, Bunny's letters. Bunny's cannon will go to France was the most famous <laughs> phrase of, you know, the 1970s in Britain. Yeah, A, a phrase from a letter that Thorpe yeah. writes to Scott, right, saying, yeah. promising that they'll have this trip abroad. So even though he's called a bunny and in some ways, you know, Ben Wishaw has a bunny-like affect. He's mm-hmm. so, so delicate and beautiful and he's so delicate and beautiful. And he plays that kind of the desirable, you know, the side of this kind of love object beautifully. But he also shows up the second time he meets Jeremy Thorpe with a suitcase and a dog. Yes. <laughs> and seems the House seems, of Commons. Right. And it seems very clear that he wants to be taken care of and is angling to be taken care of. And so you see that exploitation working both ways, but also how both of them are sort of backed into a corner by a society that refuses to recognize them. And I believe that John Preston in your interview says this, but I think that the show also gets this across in three short hours. It gets this across very well that if homosexuality had been legal in Britain at that time, none of this would have happened. Right. I mean, another part of that is for all of Scott being perhaps unhappy because he's portrayed as a figure of comedy, I think, too, that's something that we'll talk about in the tale of how he now sees his former self. And it's now, you know, 40 years in the past. Maybe he doesn't want to see himself fully, but, um, you know, he clearly was a man with some mental health issues. He was very, you know, he, he... was very poor. He had come from a background where, you know, he, his, his, his circumstances were miserable. Um, Jeremy Thorpe took his national insurance card. He couldn't get a real job, even if he'd been capable of it, that he had these issues that perhaps he wouldn't want to confront. And it doesn't make him a figure of fun and a comedy, but also he was a Catholic. Just there were so many factors that he may not really have been able to kind of see himself fully in the way that a, a distanced, you know, a writer or director or audience might see him. And I'll also say just on the on the subject of, you know, things that are done quite subtly in this show, there are also some references to people who we now know, thanks to investigations of his, historical sexual abuse, as they call it in Britain, were themselves, you know, paedophiles, uh, sexual exploiters, names who were mentioned like Clement Freud, Cyril Smith, who were also liberal MPs who were later shown to have been doing terrible things. And that is done very, very handled very lightly, uh, but for British viewers will be very, you know, have a huge impact, I think. Yeah, I'm sure if you're British, this has whole layers of, of humor and drama and suspense that you don't even get as an American. But I have to say that even as a, a lowly yank, <laughs> I was completely charmed. And as I say, I, I, I mean, I, I wish that I had the ethical nicety to say right. that, that I wasn't utterly rich by this story, but ultimately it was it was the relationship between those two characters and the extraordinary performances of those two actors, mm-hmm. along with Stephen Furrier's light touch mm-hmm. and the shortness, the compactness. Yes. I just so appreciate that this is like three hours and done. Yeah. And yeah. Be- beautifully done. Yeah. That's a great thing about Russell T. Davis. He's he's all you know, even in just I'm a huge fan of his series, Cucumber and Banana, and he was always always very clear, like, this is it. We're not having another series. We're not having a sequel. This is it. And I love that about him. I love that about British uh, TV. And yeah, I agree. It's like, it's a beautiful thing. There's so much more we could shout out about the design, the incredible clothes, but we'll just send people to go see A Very English Scandal, now streaming on Amazon from the BBC. And if you have seen it and would like to talk about it, of course, you can join us, as always, at facebook.com slash culturefest. 
All right. Well, before we go any further, Dana, you're giving me the business today, I understand. Yes. And here it is, Steve. Uh, First up, there are still tickets available for Slate Day, which we've been talking about for a few weeks. This is something I really wish I could go to. Mm -hmm. I just want to drop everything and go to Texas and and do this. It's a live podcast experience that's produced in connection with the Texas Tribune Festival. You can join all of Slate's politically minded shows, the Political Gab Fest, Trump Cast, Amicus, El Gab Fest, and The Gist for a series of live political podcasts. And you will have unique opportunities to mingle with the hosts and fellow fans afterward. Slate Day will take place at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin, Texas, on Saturday, September 29th. It's in partnership with the Texas Tribune Festival. It's in an intimate venue with limited seating. So you can go to slate.com slash live to get tickets or more information. And in Slate Plus today, I'm excited about our conversation because we're having Mark Harris. I don't know what degree friend of the program he is, Steve, but I love when he's on our show. He's also a regular in Slate Movie Club at the end of the year and just, I think, one of the great writers on the movie business. And uh, he has a lot to say about the new Oscars category. Well, the various changes in, in the Oscars, but most principally this idea that there will now be two categories for Best Picture, Best Picture and Best Popular Picture, uh, which <laughs> Mark Harris engaged in such a sputtering rant about on Twitter. Twitter and was so funny and articulate that I thought we just had to have him on for Slate Plus to talk about the new Oscars category. So to hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, which is a great way to support the magazine. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and all your other favorite Slate shows. And in return, you get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate podcasts and many other benefits. So if you want to support the Culture Gab Fest, you can go to slate.com slash Culture Plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Steve, on with the show. Very pointedly, the protagonist of the movie The Tale shares the same name as its writer and director, Jennifer Fox. We toggle back and forth between her 13-year-old self and her present-day self. Now she is a successful documentary filmmaker. Then she was a shy and vulnerable girl away at summer camp where she is sexually groomed and cultivated by a horse-riding teacher and a cross-country coach. Her grown-up self, we come to discover, has never reckoned with this experience as an abusive relationship. What follows is a journey into the past and into herself, an awakening unto her own victimhood. Uh, The movie features a remarkable performance, it has to be said, right up front by Laura Dern. It also stars Ellen Burstyn and Common. And uh, Isabel Nelis, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, as Laura Dern's younger self. Let's listen to a clip. The body remembers everything, it really does. Good girl, Jenny. Let's go. Take that jump again. Come on. I'm sorry, no, 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 I don't no. know what happened. No fretting, no, it's fine. Get right back on that horse. Here we go. Good girl. Ha. Here we go. Take a breath. Okay. I want you to use this. I don't want that horse getting any bad habits, do we? Remember, no bad horses, only bad riders. There are no bad horses, only bad riders. Right? Okay, let's take it again. Back on the rating, girls. I was remiss. I should have also said the movie features Elizabeth Debicki as Mrs. G, the um, sinister cultivator of the young girl and the writing teacher who you heard in that clip. Dana, let's start with you. This is a, this is a brutal, brutal film, brutally honest uh, and brutally serious. What did you uh, What did you make of it? Well, first, I just want to say I'm glad that we're talking about this film 
now, even though it's quite a while after it came out, because this feels like a movie that's gone maybe in some ways because of its very upsetting subject matter has really gone under the radar while being widely praised. It was at Sundance, Steve, when we were at Sundance doing our live show there this year. And I remember not being able to get into it because it was so mobbed and considered one of the best things of the festival. But it didn't sell theatrically and wound up going to HBO instead. That's not to be understood as a marketing failure, but it is a way that, you know, movies can kind of slip under common notice and, for example, not get things like Oscar nominations, which we'll be talking about in the Plus segment this week. So this is a movie I feel that really, really deserves to be seen and uh, and is beautifully done and innovative, but is about something so upsetting and handles that material in such a complex and challenging way that it may be something that, like me, you know you want to see, but you keep on putting off because you just don't know if you want to face that material right now. And I would say a couple of things in favor of facing the material. For one thing, this movie has a lot of artistic value. It does not feel like a social message movie. It does not feel like an after-school special in the least. And it takes this subject matter, which we're seeing a lot of both in fictional and non-fictional forms in this Me Too moment, to a very different place than I have seen it taken before. In large part, Steve, because of that time-shifting structure that you talked about, which ends up being this kind of exploration of subjectivity and memory and the faultiness of memory Just to give one example of that, which happens very early in the film, so it's not spoiling even anything aesthetic, really, uh, is that when Laura Dern's character, when Jennifer Fox starts to remember this history of the, the summer where she met these two adults who ended up essentially kind of grooming her together for this strange kind of love triangle threesome that they were trying to cultivate, uh, she remembers herself as older than she was. And we see her as older. So we see this actress who looks maybe 15, 16. Very poised. Yeah, just an elegant young woman who seems to be maybe more, I mean, still a minor, but more kind of the mistress of her own body and her own desires. We see her in a couple of scenes riding horses, meeting the running instructor, etc. And then there's a conversation that Laura Dern has with her mother, played beautifully by Ellen Burstyn, where she realizes that she was, in fact, 13 at the time. She starts to look at a photo album and realizes how small she was. And at that point in the movie, an entirely different actress, Isabel yeah. Melise, the younger girl, steps in to play the role. And you see those same scenes again with a child in them mm-hmm. and feel completely differently about them. And that's just one example of this kind of shattering of the past that happens as Laura Dern's character starts to explore it. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's the movie in some ways is about whether or not these two um, people, this 13-year-old Jennifer and this 40-something-year-old Jennifer, are going to be able to reconcile themselves into one integrated being. I'm not sure what the movie's answer is. Whatever it is, it's not a simple one, but it seems to me the turning point in the movie is over the word victim, which Mm -hmm. absolutely repels the older Jennifer. She hates that word. um, And it's it's her attempt to distance herself completely from that framework of self-understanding that is the, uh, that is really the, the, focal point of her brokenness in this movie. Yeah, it's a, there's a very powerful uh, theme where, in a sense, the 48-year-old Jennifer is kind of defending the story that 13-year-old Jenny told herself, told other people. Um, and there's something really powerful about that of, of like not, like, yes, you have to kind of integrate with your past self. You have to kind of shed light on areas that you may have kind of dimmed out for your own purposes, uh, consciously or unconsciously. But to be honest, and if you want to be honest, and if you want to have a full uh, reckoning, you can't rewrite your own history 
just, you know, not just with an eraser. You can maybe wrestle with it. Maybe you'll come to a change. Maybe you'll change your mind. But you can't just do it by fiat and say, I, older Jennifer, now declare that younger Mm -hmm. Jennifer was abused. Because although she doesn't deny that she was abused, she doesn't want to take away her 13-year-old agency. Even as she, you know, the deeper, the more she learns about what really happened, the more she has conversations with people who were there, she can't deny that there was abuse and she doesn't try to. But at the same time, she is pushing away, as you say, Steve, she's pushing away that label of victim or she just doesn't want to to remove the, the kind of that she had some agency, that she realized that she was taken advantage of, that she was groomed, that she was, in a sense, a target for these two much more powerful, much more poised adults. But she still holds on to some, like, this was a relationship. I was in a relationship with an older man. And she keeps repeating that, like, that's important. And she doesn't want to be told she doesn't want it just to be told that it was wrong. I well, guess. one of the, the in one of the fights that she has with her younger self, there's this wonderful exchange where the young Jennifer says, "I wasn't the victim of this story; I was the hero." Mm-hmm. And you feel a real respect for that. It's not as if you're cheering on the revelation of victimhood. And the movie, I think, makes us struggle with the question of what victimhood is and mm-hmm. what it means to claim it, and whether there could be something in between hero and victim that would still allow you to hold on to the dignity and respect that you have for your younger self, and to not just transform yourself into society's idea of a victim. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautifully said. I mean, I, you know, the most sinister thing that struck me about Roger Ailes when all those stories came out is the care that he took to ask each one of his victims about their family and and the the, the young woman's the young employee's relationship to her family. Uh, you know, as a way of understanding how vulnerable they were and what their support structures were and what they would recur to when he began to victimize them. Um, and in this, this movie is very wise about this. You know, her family is what she's repudiating and escaping. Mm-hmm. She's a 13-year-old who feels stifled by the nuclear situation she's found herself in. Um, and it's because, at least from her perspective, she thinks of her family as something that cannot be trusted and cannot save her, that she's so trusting with these adults. And then on the flip side, it's very subtle uh, the way the movie anatomizes their manipulations because the man especially tells her, on the one hand, she's very grown up and very mature and very special, just like them, the two grown ups. And on the other, he says, I'm not really a grown up. I'm essentially like you. I'm young. I'm fresh. I see through the hypocrisies of the adult world. And um, the movie's highly specific in showing you how a, a, a monster gains the trust of a of a young and vulnerable person by by elevating them um uh and um it's uh it's horrifying um and i'm curious to ask you guys what you make of maybe the boldest decision the movie makes artistically um it's the first movie i've ever seen uh that comes with the disclaimer at the end that all of the scenes involving sex with a minor involved an adult body double, which I think one absolutely needed to hear Mm -hmm. because there are totally explicit recreations of the, uh, totally explicit, let me back that up a little bit. There are extremely explicit uh, recreations of the sex the grown-up has with the 13-year-old girl. What would you make of that choice? I mean, I think it's just part of this this movie's go for broke boldness. You know, if I think if if it wasn't if the film hadn't been made by the person that this happened to, who's using yeah. her own name and telling her own story, 
maybe there would be some room to object to to the explicitness or potential exploitativeness. But since, as you say, for one thing, I think a lot of lengths were gone to make sure that Isabel Nelis, the actress who who was only 11 at the time of filming, who who plays young Jenny, you know, was not involved in, in anything graphic or that would be traumatic to her. I don't even think she knew the whole story that right. she was telling. Right. Um, given that and given the fact that this is Jennifer Fox's story to tell. Those scenes didn't bother me at all. In fact, I had heard so many warnings about how graphic and disturbing this movie was that I was sort of relieved that the scenes weren't closer to X-rated than they are. Yeah. No, I mean, that is that is an odd thing because like you, Dana, I you know didn't think it was something I would watch just because, you know, in that bland way of like, to, you know, especially because it's on television and it's like, oh, that's for entertainment. This is not going to be entertaining, you know, which I apologize for taking that attitude. But the, the thing, the word that kept coming to me as I was watching is that despite this being unflinching, it's very inviting. It's like you, she doesn't hide how desirable it was to be part of this triangle, um, that, there, that there's something there was some it, of course it was flattering and it was grooming but that it really did give her something that she you know that there was clearly a very negative aspect to it but the she isn't she isn't afraid to show that there were positive aspects of having what was essentially a much more grown up relationship with adults than she should have had but hey that there was something it there. made her the person that yeah. she was including and the film is pretty explicit about this it made her into a documentary filmmaker and there's mm. some scenes of her teaching classes uh, in how to make documentary films and sometimes making some decisions that are a little bit exploitive of her students yeah. where you see some of that that damage being played out yeah. you know trying to get them to tell stories they might not want to tell but there's definitely a sense that the iconoclastic truth-telling kind of rigorously independent-minded mm. person that Jennifer Fox grows up to be who Laura Dern plays incredibly yeah. Um, is the same is on a continuum with that with that girl and right. the experiences yep. of that girl have helped to make her the person that she is and so that to me again it was just a very uh, inspiring is the wrong word for a story like this but that was an aspect of the story that lent strength to the character and did not just strip her of agency. Yeah, and there right. was some acknowledgement that there were bad things that happened. That she, you know, this is, comes from her mother, so it's her mother's language, but that, that she had a promiscuous period, that she isn't a mother, that she isn't married, although she's engaged uh, to Carmen. Um, but that, you know, so in a sense that we have this, like, we, she doesn't hide the fact that there were perhaps, depending on your point of view, negative uh, consequences of having had this very potentially damaging relationship too early, um, but but she also, as you say, isn't afraid to say. But Luke, it also helped me in certain senses. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, as the first feature of someone who's been an established documentarian for a while, this is really exciting work. I hope that doesn't sound cynical to say somehow, but a person who's able to start off their narrative filmmaking career with something this honest and this inventive, I think, has some great films left in them. Yeah, absolutely. All right. It's The Tale. It uh, stars Laura Dern and various others. It's on HBO streaming. Uh, we all think you should watch it. All right, moving on. All right, so for our final segment today, we're joined by Jody Rosen, contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, and newly a, a columnist, uh, named a columnist for Tablet Magazine. Jody, of course, is, I think, just ultra-supreme friend of the program. Um, there was one person to talk to when it has come time to talk about the legacy of Aretha Franklin, and that was Jody Rosen. Jody, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Steve. 
Um, this is a sad segment either way. We should say that Aretha Franklin is still alive and with us. Um, so what follows is a, a celebration of, I I mean, Jody, I have to say it. I mean, I think probably one of the most, if not the most universally beloved figure in American history, but certainly pop culture and music history. I, there is something wrong with you if you don't <laughs> toweringly admire and love this person. I really just don't think I'm laying it on thick here. No, uh, I'd agree. I mean, look, I mean, I've been thinking about Aretha Franklin for a long time, but I've also been thinking about her a lot in the last 24 hours. And and what is there to say? She's the greatest American singer. Um, she's maybe not as foundational as someone like Louis Armstrong or as you know technically impeccable as, say, Sarah Vaughan or Ella Fitzgerald, and maybe not as revolutionary, aesthetically revolutionary a singer as Billie Holiday or Bob Dylan or even Frank Sinatra, but she's the greatest American singer. Uh, and not just because of her amazing sound and amazing recordings, but I think because of the way her her music kind of represents the like the the power, the majesty of American music, of African American music in particular, which after all is is our country's greatest contribution to world culture. So, you know, we can get into the specifics a bit more as the conversation goes on. But you know, one thing I I, I has always struck me about Aretha, who I've written about a bit or tried to write about. Um, I go back to something that Robert Criscow once wrote, the rock critic Robert Criscow. I'm paraphrasing, but Criscow, basically he said that no one has ever satisfactorily described, satisfactorily mm. described Aretha's yeah. genius, described her her sound, her voice. And, you know, and I think that's, that's right. When I listen to songs like, um, you know, Ain't No Way or Spirit in the Dark or... Um, her her incredible version of Amazing Grace from that album of that title from 1972, I think, or even a poppier song like um, Until You Come Back to Me. For me, these those performances, somehow, they kind of, sounds cheesy, but they touch like the deepest mysteries of what music, what musical art is, you know, they, mm-hmm. they uh, what makes it beautiful and meaningful in a way that kind of is ineffable, that dis- defies explanation or exegesis. So that might not be the best intro to a subject where we're about to break down Aretha Franklin, but like full disclosure, uh, think, what, what can you say? <laughs> no, maybe that's we a, should listen. Yeah, exactly. That's a beautiful way. And let's listen. Um, Joe, do you pick a cut to open with? Well, maybe if we want to st- st- just do this a little chronologically, you know, um, so Aretha, in, when she was just 18 years old, she was signed to Columbia Records. She came out of, of course, um, the black church tradition. Her father, C.L. Franklin, was a extremely famous and prominent Detroit um, minister uh, in the Baptist Church and himself a recording artist um, uh, and a major figure in the civil rights movement. Um, But she went into secular music at age 18, was signed by the great producer John Hammond to Columbia Records. And Columbia kind of famously didn't really know what to do with Aretha. They tried to sort of make her a more um, I guess genteel jazz vocalist type in the early 60s. But um, so those records are a mixed bag, but you can certainly hear her, her, uh, you know, f- kind of budding genius on those records. And certain certain of those uh, recordings, in particular, you can really hear Aretha come into flower. So the one that I love is called "Nobody Like You" from 1962. I think Aretha was 19 years old at the time she recorded this, and um, she plays piano on the song. Uh, pian- she's a, she 
is a great piano player. It kind of has always been the the gospel, giving the gospel ballast to all of her her performances. Um, and you can hear in her kind of the kind of rolling piano that she plays in what really is a kind of small group jazz arrangement, and in um, the way she emotes in this song, the kind of gospel style, really. St- soul style singing that she sings in what was clearly not supposed to be that type of a song you hear her fully formed as a musical genius at age 19 and now I know it's all it's all because I love you I love you so much Oh my God. I mean, she was 19, and I, you know what I love about the performance? You hear her like she's really laying back, way behind the beat. There, she's mm. already so confident that she's doing things rhythmically and kind of em- em- <laughs> embellishing the melody in a you know like a supremely confident singer. Well, that's an understatement. Um, so obviously, she began as a gospel singer, and in one respect, was always a gospel singer. But she made a big transition in her life when she moved to Atlantic Records uh, and began working with the producer Jerry Wexler. Talk a little bit about about what that turning point was. Yeah, so it's really that she found the right home for herself musically. She basically found someone who would pr- who gave her who provided the infrastructure for her to be herself musically because Atlantic Records, the label Atlantic was, um, you know, beginning in the late 1940s was kind of the home of, forgive the phrase, but authentic um, uh, black R&B and and jazz and early soul music. You know, Ray Charles was on the label. Um, Other, many, Ruth Brown, other great artists of the time. But the thing was, they didn't try and gentrify the sound at Atlantic. They wanted... They wanted black music. And so Aretha um, was signed by Atlantic and basically Jerry Wexler hooked her up with um, the, uh, you know, a great group of musicians and said, let's play some songs. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, and and also, you know, uh, Aretha played piano on those sessions. She was, you know, a great musical mind and a great band leader, effectively, and so she she took charge, and the the her you know her first Atlantic album was the classic, the Titanic. I never loved a man the way I loved you, and in that it's gospel music with secular subject subject matter. You know, love love psalms set to gospel and and blues sounds, um, and you know, and the rest is history, really. Uh, well, why don't we listen to the title track? I never loved a man the way I love you. I love the choice, which is a strong one, to go with that harmony on the uh, on the on the chorus line on the money line of the chorus. Mm. You know, I mean, it's not the most obvious choice when you're dealing with the greatest voice in pop music history, but it it really works in the context of the song. 
another thing that I think is often look, overlooked about her musicianship is her songwriting. She was she was a songwriter and a great one when she put her mind to it. She's so well known as an interpreter, but she wrote some great songs. One of her one of her her absolute greatest recordings, I think, um, and a song that kind of like sums up a lot of what's the kind of magic and I I mean again I hate to be a cheese ball but mystery in her music is the song Spirit in the Dark from the which is the title track of her um Atlantic album from I think 1970 and Spirit in the Dark is I mean it's a song that's that's about music and about god and about sex and dance dancing and ultimately I think kind of about like a Aretha herself in a way about about how how you connect to the 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 kind of transcendent when you listen to a piece of music or how Aretha connected to it when she sang and so you can, and there's some great piano playing in this song too check it out That is such a great example, Jody, of what you were talking about, about church music gone secular, right? I mean, it clearly is a, a, a song about sensory experiences and sensual experiences of some kind, but it also just, it just sounds so churchy in the best way. Yeah, and it's also an example about how um, how there's a, there's, a, there's a politics that's kind of beneath everything or, you know, <laughs> alongside everything when she talks about sister, sisters and brothers. Well, that's, that's like a gospel inflection trope there right there but it's also she's addressing she's addressing her black audience in recent years she hasn't flown she didn't care for airplanes so her her traveling radius has been a bit limited but you know she can make it to the white house she can make it to you know a, a big occasion and you know often when you see you know especially amazing talents toward the end of their career you're like mm, is this going to how is it going to be and with her as you say despite some you know, loss of full powers, you know, the the body ages, the time time withers us all, but that voice is still there. It's still amazing. She, you know, brought President Obama to tears when she was singing um Natural Woman, I guess. Yeah. Natural Woman, of course. And um and there, yeah, maybe her her voice was a bit diminished, but what she brought was the the gravitas, you know, the 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 power and <laughs> intelligence of her of her singing, and of course, you know, she still she still had formidable chops, even if she wasn't at the top of her game. But you know, I think also this is another thing about her: like she's she's subtly a confessional artist, as all artists are. She she had a very tumultuous life. She um, uh, had lots of heartbreak and romance. Um, this is something that isn't talked about her a lot. But she she got she had her first child when she was twelve years old. She had her second child when she was fourteen years old. Um, she uh you know lost her father and he was shot when in 1979 he went into a coma died 5 years later you know she's seen a lot in her time <laughs> um and she so she bring in 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 her performances she brings that that you know that pain um and i think about those like her great great ballad performances ain't no way uh oh me oh my the, there's i mean there's many there i have a 
one that I especially love from later in her career called Sweet Bitter Love. Jody, I'd love to toss a ballad out there of hers that I love. She wrote it uh, and she performed it live on the album. Yeah. Uh, three exclamation point, uh, points in person with her quartet, which was actually before the 67 turning point. It's called um, Without the One You Love. You're like a dying rose in summer without the one you love. One telephone call One line, one line or so Could mean a world that, that, That's just That just slices me right into every time I love that cut I, I hope the virtue of this segment, Jody, Is that we're able to talk about her still in the present tense And we're, you know Really honoring someone who's contributions to all of our lives is i mean the only proper response is just is just total gratitude is there is there somewhere you want to um take us before we go yeah i mean um i mean you know i'm i'm like i'm i'm (laughs) i'm so tempted to throw all these superlatives away i just can't kind of help it um so i'm just gonna but like i mean one, one thing i'd say about her i mean like you know it's like how great an artist is Aretha Franklin? Like, how important is she? I think, like, the like, you know, she's as great an American artist as you know Whitman or Melville or Jackson Pollock or you name it. You know, and it's that's not something mm-hmm. that we we don't really usually think in those terms about you know popular entertainers, and we don't usually think in those terms about or we haven't usually spoken in those terms about women and especially black women, but it's like, you know, put Aretha Franklin on the $1 bill. Fuck it. Um, but, uh, in any case, um, why don't we, why don't we listen to like one of her, um, the more joyous and upbeat recordings, even though the subject matter is, <laughs> is, is, is tricky. The song, I'm, I'm thinking of the song until you come back to me, which is written, co-written by Stevie wonder. All right, well, Jody, thank you so much for coming in to talk about uh, Aretha Franklin. This was a total pleasure. Thanks, guys. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? <laughs> 
Stephen, my endorsement this week is going to be related to the Slate Plus conversation we're about to have with Mark Harris about the Oscars. But you don't need to hear that conversation to get this endorsement and experience its joy. Um, So we're going to be talking about the invention of a new category, Best Picture category at the Oscars, right? Basically, Best Picture has now been divided into sort of the pat on the head, popular Best Picture that I suppose made the most money or sold the most tickets, and then the feature that is regarded as the best quality picture. We will talk about why this is a terrible idea in many ways. But one thing that I learned in the flap that ensued online after these changes were announced last week is that the very first year the Oscars were presented, there were two categories. And uh, there was some wonderful tweeting about this among various classic film bloggers that I follow. I can't name them all here, but they're all wonderful and teach me a lot about cinema all the time. So the very first year the Oscars were awarded was 1929. And the movies covered were from two years. They were from 27 and 28. And at that time, there were two Best Picture categories. There was Outstanding Picture, which would, in a way, be the the equivalent of the popular picture, right? One that lots of people saw and knew. And then the unique and artistic picture. And so essentially what happened that first year is the reverse of what's happening now. That first category disappeared after the first Oscars were presented and was sort of absorbed into outstanding picture. And so there was no longer a sort of ghettoization of quality that there had been that first year. But the picture that won that award, the unique and artistic picture that year, was F.W. Murnau's Sunrise, which is widely regarded as one of the pinnacles of silent cinema. It's a beautiful, lyrical love story and a kind of love triangle story. A very simple story about a man, a woman, a seduction, moving from the country to the city, it's sort of allegorical and archetypical um, in its approach. And I, I suppose it's obvious why it would win the unique and artistic category, but mainly thinking about the fact that Sunrise is kind of the buried Best Picture Oscar at the very first Academy Awards, where Wings, William Wellman's Wings, famously won the, the Best Outstanding Picture Award. That fact just made me want to go back and rewatch Sunrise, which I've seen a few times already. I haven't rewatched it yet this time, but it just occurred to me that, you know, there are lots of people that, unlike me, don't just geek out on silent cinema constantly, and they consider it kind of a, an alien right. territory that's subtitled and difficult to approach and hard to find. And I just want, in general, to plug for exploring silent film. It's an incredible amount of it that's available online for free, and what isn't is can easily be found now on DVD, if not streaming. It takes a certain amount of commitment to find the real buried gems, but Sunrise is certainly very, very easy to find. And to me, it's just a great introduction to, to silent cinema because it sort of shows the artistic heights that it was capable of reaching. And one of the tragedies of F.W. Murnau's Sunrise, in addition to the fact that the director died very young, not, not long after, a few years after that movie, is that it came out just at the end of silent film. It came out the same year as The Jazz Singer, and, and at the very moment that cinema was being radically overhauled. In many ways, if you're a big silent film fan, for the worse. You know, there were a few years after that where nobody was doing the kind of work that F.W. Murnau was doing in the 1920s. So I guess my endorsement in general is become a silent film nerd and explore <laughs> that world as you will. But if you want a, a starter film for it, I think you couldn't do better than Murnau's Sunrise. Wow, that's I've never very seen cool. Oh. Yeah, me neither. Um, June, what do you have? So I'm going to do a horrible thing and endorse something that won't be available until January of next year. But it is so appropriate both for the Culture Gab Fest and for you two. I think you would both really groove on this. Um, it's a book by uh, a former colleague, Juliette Lapidos, who now uh, I think runs the opinion section of the LA Times. And she has written a novel. Uh, It's called Talent. It's out in January 2019. It's um, set in the world of 
graduate school for the humanities, specifically for English. Uh, it's it's a, a person, the character is one who had a life quite similar to Juliet's and quite similar to, I imagine, in some uh, circumstances to you two, uh, set in a town that's not dissimilar to New Haven, Connecticut. And it's about uh, kind of what happens when a person who has all kinds of promise and is going to be an academic superstar kind of loses faith and also just kind of runs out of steam. And it's it's very, it's hilariously funny. It's very smart. It's very, um, like, there's a lot of content that I think people who did do their time in the sort of graduate school salt mines will really relate to. But even those of us who didn't, uh, I think we'll find... I know, I know, I find it just hilarious and great, and just such a. It was like one of those books that spoils the next book that you read because you're like, "Huh, uh, that's not, not as good as the one I just read." Um, so, especially resonant for people uh, who did graduate work in the humanities, but great for everyone. Talent by Juliet Lapidos. Go Juliet! That's so great that she's yeah. writing fiction. All right, I will yeah. definitely read. Yes, must. Um, absolutely. God, I have fond memories of um, working. Uh, with Juliet. Um, well, let me begin by saying I think that we can all agree that it it changed me, it changed us, it changed this podcast when I endorsed Pi. And I <laughs> and I feel though somehow as if we're not collective collectively honoring the memory of when what we went through, the threshold that we passed over when we went from not knowing about the best pie in the world to knowing about it. And we've taken our new selves for granted. And what's my evidence, June Thomas, you ask, for this woeful oblivion, this (laughs) self-forgetting? It's that I've endorsed ice cream now to go with the pie. But have people responded with the same intensity, the same (laughs) depth of love that they responded to pie? No. And we're talking about ice cream now. Do I need to say the words again, ice cream in summer? Ice cream in summer, I'm telling you. Kinderhook, New York, some mascot orchards, get the fruit ice cream. They grew the fruit. They made the ice cream. It is the <laughs> lactose equivalent of the pie experience. A cult must be begun here. I am the Bhagwan. You obey me. <laughs> Too much? A little weird? Okay, anyway, moving on. Um, so V.S. V. Naipaul has died, the British writer, uh, born in Trinidad, Later, a British uh, citizen, uh, winner of the 2001 Nobel Prize for Literature, and as readers of uh, highbrow magazines know, a very, very troubled uh, figure, human being, uh, and a, and a, I think, completely appropriately troubled reputation. I mean, he was, in addition to being personally monstrous, uh, he held views that I think most people now regard as more or less uh, repugnant. Um, what's, of course, interesting about Naipaul is that he was a genius. He was a brilliant writer, and he himself was uh, the victim of, uh, in some respects, uh, though he w- would have refused to put it in those terms, of the colonialism that he later began to excrescently exhibit um, symptoms of, of, um, uh, of participating in. Nonetheless, a genius, right? I mean, the, 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 I have read very little V.S. Naipaul. I'm going to correct that. But he wrote an essay about Argentina that I've uh, endorsed formally on this program. I just want to say that it's a remarkable piece of writing 
It's called The Return of Eva Perón. And he's just trying to get at what the essence of the Perón cult was for Argentina, why they were vulnerable to it, why it expressed something about their national spirit. And what people say about Naipaul is that his genius was not separable from what made him personally monstrous, that there's a, a kind of diagnostic coldness um, and kind of a, a, a kind of a clinical almost bordering on contempt, ability to see people in places as they are in themselves. And the argument against them would be that there's that 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 they're overly reductive um, and they have a tendency to blame the victim. But there was just something about, I think, the soul of Argentina that Naipaul did get right and and in fact had offered itself up to criticism as withering as his and it was argentines who put me onto it um and insisted that i read it that some that, that what they feel disenchants them about their own society and it's kind of hopelessly uh uh farcical and repetitive politics naipaul naipaul had really underst- understood i i would love to hear from people who disagree with this and disagree with it vehemently i'm not telling you that it's true i'm only telling you that i find it a remarkable almost sort of small tour de force piece of writing um and that argentines I know um, uh, some of whom are literary intellectuals insist that, that 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 he got something right about it. But anyway, I'm just curious to hear from listeners what their experience of Naipaul is. I mean, it seems to me the early novels are are inescapable, and even people who have major misgivings about him um, believe that those are works of, of genius or near genius. So anyway, um, <clears throat> The Return of Ava Perón by V.S. Naipaul. June, thank you so much for uh, coming in. This is always, always great when you fill in. Thank you for having me. Say, nah, thanks. This was a joy. As ever. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. We also, we have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and June Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. We'll, we'll see you soon. <laughs>